You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, Harmony. Thanks so much for coming on the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm super happy to have you here and happy to explore where we're going to chat about our long history and the same style of yoga. So welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kino. It's so nice to be here today with you. So I think there's many listeners who might not know you and your history and the practice. And I uh, would love it if you would kind of walk people back to, you know, your very first, maybe first trip to India and how you got started in the Ashtanga practice and, you know, where you are today. Sure. I'd love to share a little bit of my story. So I guess to kind of give it full justice, I should go back to being a ballet dancer, which I did for many, many years and, um, you know, struggled with body image and body dysmorphia and a lot of issues coming up around eating disorders and, um, always feeling very large and, uh, trying to lose weight all the time, even though I really wasn't, you know, so Um, And finally, I got down to about 90 pounds and was like losing all my hair and feeling like I was probably on my way knocking on death's doorstep, Um, at which point I completely quit um, dancing altogether, just like decided that it was causing a lot of unnecessary um, mental anguish. And, um, now was there anything that precipitated that? Were there, was there like an intervention Was your family concerned or how did you come to that conclusion? I think I was just feeling really, uh, I was feeling really terrible. Actually, it was like hard to get out of bed. I would like sometimes have fainting spells. I was, you know, just had no energy and really feeling like I was losing my vitality and also very obsessed and consumed with like counting calories and every little, you know, every little bit of my life was very structured and regimented. And, um, I kind of just, I guess, felt like I wanted to blow it all up because it seemed like the only way out at that time. So that's pretty much what I did. I just said, I'm not going back. I'm, I was in a, an apprentice with a company and I just quit and wrote them a letter and said, I'm not coming back. And, um, sorry. (laughs) Wow. So (laughs) how did that feel? Was that scary? Was that, you know, what did that bring up? Yeah, it was super, it was really scary actually at the time because it was so much of my life. It was like every day, hours, every day of training. And it was so much wrapped up in my identity of who I was. And so the next few years after that really became kind of a time of exploration and trying to figure out who I was without any kind of, you know, ballet or modern or, or jazz or any kind of, of movement. So I, um, I started like running a little bit and I started just kind of exploring different ways of moving my body. But I also, um, like plunged headfirst into a double degree uh, at the university here in Canada in the city of Calgary, where I'm from. 
And so I started studying philosophy and religious studies and um, being like a very, I guess, A-type perfectionist personality, (laughs) you know, was doing the full course load and, you know, really intensive studying and writing papers and um, started to feel quite imbalanced because, you know, when you're studying so much, you tend not to have as much time for movement or, you know, eating proper food. And so I really kind of was losing that connection with my body and feeling a little bit depressed and, uh, started having some anxiety attacks as well, because my mind was just always going and there was no release of, of being able to like, let go of the thoughts, you know, I started to feel like I was going crazy. Um, at which point I said to my mom, I was, I called her up and I said, mom, I think I need to like go see a psychologist or go talk to someone. I think I'm going crazy. I'm having anxiety attacks. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling really depressed. I don't know what to do. Now, had you done any treatment for the eating disorder after you left the dance company? No. So that was also still there too. I mean, Mm -hmm. not as intensely of course, but definitely during times of stress, it would come up, you know, I Mm -hmm. would like binge and purge, especially like when feeling stressed or depressed or anxious, like all these things. So it was kind of exasperated, exacerbated. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Exacerbating (laughs) the situation. (laughs) I was getting all my syllables reversed. (laughs) Um, so my mom said, you know, you've been like in your body for your whole life, very active and like, like moving and, and kinesthetic, maybe you need to go do some yoga or something, <laughs> which is, you know, so funny. Cause I was just like, Oh, yoga. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> so I looked up, um, place to take some yoga in the city. And at that time there was really Iyengar yoga, Um, and then there was sort of this, I guess, power yoga studio that had many different types. So it had some traditional Ashtanga classes. They did a lot of rocket series at that time was very popular by Larry Schultz. And, um, and then like some sort of Hatha type Shivananda, you know, restorative style classes. So I just, they had a, a deal, $90 for 90 days. And I was a student at the time. And I was like, that sounds great. <laughs> so I went and, and registered and just started taking like as many classes as I could. Um, you know, every, I try and go every day and just any class. I had no idea. I was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. but the first class I took was either, I don't know. I don't think it was like true full Ashtanga, but it was definitely based on half primary series because I remember like seeing Marichyasana D and like having my, like thinking like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? Like, (laughs) this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And also at that time I was, you know, I was pretty young. Um, I was, I must've been about 20, maybe 21 at the time. So I was also like, very, I was still very thin and very like flexible, like from the dancing. And so the teachers were quite, you know, 
happy to have me in their class because even though I had no idea what to do, they could kind of like move my body and put me in the posture. And then I'd be like, oh my God, what's going on? Um, but then at the end of the class, I sort of had that classic, um, Shavasana, you know, bliss experience where it's just so incredible. It's, you just are, feel completely at peace and you get up after, and I just felt clean on the inside and I was still smoking at this time, cigarettes, like every day, <laughs> and, you know, drinking a lot and, I remember wow. leaving the yoga class and thinking like, like, I don't even want to have a cigarette. I feel so clean inside. I feel so good. And I just want to like eat vegetables and drink water, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, it was like, I could see things more clearly. The world seemed brighter. It really like had a very strong effect on, on my brain chemistry um, yeah. and my feeling inside my body for the first time, I really felt like good inside my body instead of like terrible. Mm-hmm. So I think so many people can identify with that, right? Yeah. You know, I, it's no like matter. the gateway drug yeah, totally. <laughs> to yoga. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, was it, was it your first kind of rigorous practice that did that to you or, or was it just any yoga? It was, I think it was like my first, I would say rigorous or kind of like, it was like a, a class. Cause I'd done some yoga prior to this. I'd done some sun salutations, some stretching, some standing postures even, but it was always in relationship to warming up for a dance mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was never like, you know, it was like maybe 20 minutes or something. And it wasn't really focused on like the breath and the moving and, like where you're really concentrating on your body and, and feeling sensation and trying to make the breath and the movements come together. It wasn't taught in that way. So this was definitely a new sort of like hour, hour and a half experience of like very intense concentration and also doing a lot of postures I'd never seen or <laughs> even like experimented with before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if there mm -hmm. wasn't a like dedicated Ashtanga studio in Calgary, how did you end up in India? Yeah. So that was, I kind of like after these, you know, the first three months, of course, I then like bought the pass to (laughs) keep going (laughs) because I was addicted to the yoga by then. Um, And also I was feeling so much better um, and also way less stressed out through my studies at school I was kind of studying, I would say way less and like working way less hard and getting way better grades. And I was like, this is magic. (laughs) I have to keep doing this. (laughs) Um, And so I kind of started to figure out like just through talking to people at the studio and like what the difference was between the classes and they were offering different workshops and guest teachers coming in. So my first workshop was with David Williams, who mm-hmm. came and talked about India and Ashtanga and Patabi Joyce. And, and as he was talking and he's telling his story, I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go to India and meet this Patabi Joyce. I remember after the workshop, I asked him, so is Patabi Joyce still alive? And he's like, yeah, he's in Mysore. And I was like, oh, I want to go. <laughs> so then I kind of really got into, because I have, I have an affinity already for like tradition. 
I was studying Buddhism and really interested in like Buddhist practices, Buddhist philosophy, um, you know, and even like from a philosophical standpoint, I was interested in like, you know, schools of thought. So I really like wasn't kind of just wanting to play around. I was wanting to go really deep and use the practice as a, a spiritual tool. Um, so that's what really drew me to India. But of course, I was a little bit nervous about going and I still was a full-time student, so I couldn't go right away. Um, instead, a opportunity came up for me to go to China and study Buddhism for uh, six weeks. So um, I did that. I went uh, with my school and did a field school and studied Buddhist meditation there and went to some different monasteries. And then that really, I guess, inspired me or propelled me. And I think in my spiritual quest, you know, I became vegetarian. I had been vegetarian off and on before, but mostly that was because I didn't want to eat any food. <laughs> right. So um, this time it became more of like a discipline around ahimsa and it felt like just really right and resonated with me. And I stopped drinking and I stopped smoking. And it was like, I kind of entered this, this path, um, you know, of Buddhist practice. And then I wanted to do the yoga too, because it was, you know, a movement-based practice. So I was kind of combining the two practices at the time and studying Sanskrit at university. And basically all of my religious studies um, classes at that point were a lot of them were sort of the higher level classes where you can pick kind of what you want to study or research and so, of course, everything I was researching was either Buddhism or, or uh, yoga-related, you know, Indian philosophy. So, um, and I also ended up doing some workshops. We, we had some teachers come through the city. So, uh, Lucy Motorella, uh, who's mm -hmm. Dominique Crigliano's mm -hmm. uh, ex-wife, Matt Crigliano's wife, or I mean, mother, not mother. wife. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get that wrong. <laughs> Mother <laughs> from Hawaii. She, uh, she came twice. And so I practiced with her and she was super inspirational for me. She's like this tiny little lady who has really terrible scoliosis. And I also had scoliosis, still have scoliosis. <laughs> and so she was so inspiring because I, I kept thinking, oh, maybe I can't do things. And she was just doing like four series with scoliosis that was way worse than mine. And so I was like, okay, I can do anything. If she can do that, I can do anything. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And Fiona Stang came and taught some workshops. Mm -hmm. So there's all these, you know, senior teachers to me, um, coming and, and sharing the practice. And so at that point, as soon as I finished my last class at university, I left and went to India to, to, practice with Patabi Joyce and Sharat Joyce there. Um, and that was 2004. And that was when I met you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those times, I feel like that's a, such a, hold such a warm place in my heart, you know, yeah. when, um, you know, that, 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 that community of practitioners that was there and it was, uh, yeah, I think I remember, you know, yeah. you, uh, the, the, your first trip there and you meeting you. And again, yeah. I just hold such a warm place in my heart for that time. Yeah. Yeah. It was special. It was like, still not quite too big. You still kind of got to mm -hmm. talk mm -hmm. with people and meet them and, yeah. you know, get to know them a little bit more. And the internet mm -hmm. wasn't so 
so widely available? Yeah, I don't even know if I had a website at that point. I don't think I did. Like, I don't think the Shala even had a website at that point. Like, yeah. I think it was still, you know, my 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 first trip, I, I remember there wasn't a website and <clears throat> it was, um, I was directed to write a letter. Yes, you know? that's what I did too. Right. Write a I letter. had a, a little address of mm-hmm. where to go written on a piece of paper that I think exactly. Fiona had given me or something. Exactly, yeah, it's like passed around like that. And then I remember... Like, and maybe you got the same direction of write a letter to Patavi Joyce. Yes. Yeah, and if you I don't did. hear back, you can go. I know. And I was so worried he wouldn't know who I was. I sent a photo as well. <laughs> I was like, okay, so he knows that I actually wrote the letter. Yeah. Did you, I don't, like, did I don't you, know if he even read them. <laughs> well, did you pour your heart out into that letter? I think probably like, I really am a devoted student who wants to come and study with you. <laughs> I just poured my heart and soul into the letter. I remember that thinking, you know, this practice has changed my life. Yeah. And even though I'm just starting and I would really like, please accept me, blah, blah, blah. I just went on and on and on, you know? And um, actually my very first trip when I did that, I had just started a master's degree program, but I took the summer off to go to India. Mm-hmm. And I was going to, I thought I would stay and try to get the degree done sooner, but then, uh, you know, the practice came up and it was just like, absolutely not. I'm going to go to India right now. I have the time off in the summer. So let me go yeah. for my maximum amount that I can. Yeah. And I just, I'm so grateful for that. You know, it's amazing that I feel there was like such a strong pull at that time that mm-hmm. it really, like, if you were being pulled to India, maybe it's the same now. I don't know. Maybe I'm just have other priorities, but <laughs> at that point in my life, it felt like, where you it was needed just to like, be. Yeah, irresistible. You yeah, know? totally. Yeah. I felt like my whole life revolved around just, you know, what can I do to get back to India to continue my studies and practice more? That's like, yeah. if I go away, then all I want to do is earn enough money so that I can go back for as long as I possibly can and study everything I can and just immerse myself in the practice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's such a luxury time. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You know, think about now, you know, our days are, I don't know about you, but my day feels so busy from one thing to another. And, um, you know, Tim's birthday is coming up and I was like, Tim, we are doing something for your birthday. We're going to go and stay one night somewhere. And he said to me, and I said, do you want to do two nights? He said, no, 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 one night, one night only one night, just one night. <laughs> Because we have so much going on, you know, like the building project that we're working on yeah. is getting completed, hopefully soon. Uh, and then, you know, we're finishing up another course. This is just like at one night is enough. And then I, I made him, <laughs> yeah. I made him promise to do another vacation at a later date. But, but before it was like India was our vacation. Like we didn't need to go, you know, like plan out time to sit on a beach because we were doing <laughs> like the maximum amount of time that we could in India. And then that just filled us up for the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice when you can take like three months off and just practice and submerse yourself in that culture and the heritage and the teachings and the practice. Mm -hmm. You go so deep. Totally. And then you like are so fueled up. It kind of, you can kind of just sail through the rest of the year. And Absolutely. then maybe you start feeling like you need a vacation after month nine or something, you know? Yeah. And then that vacation is, you know, I'm feeling uninspired in my practice. Okay. It's time to go back. I got to go back. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you start planning your next trip and it's just this, this interesting, 
you know, this interesting fire that gets lit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very indicative of the student's journey, you know, and then there's this question of, you know, when does the student become the teacher? So here we are now, you know, talking about our fire Mm -hmm. as a student. And I have to say personally, I like, I love teaching. I really, really love teaching. And my most favorite space to be in is the student. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you you feel that way too. Yeah. I, I mean, I always, I always say if I was just like independently like wealthy and didn't need to do anything, I think I'd just be a student, like in everything, in every area of life. I just want to like be a student learning. (laughs) Absolutely. I really, really understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Such a a growth space, you know, it's so nice to just be able to like hear other people, you know, teaching something or sharing their experience and then be able to think about it and, you know, relate it to your own life or try to, um, you know, like go deeper into it and it's just, it's so nice. And then, and then of course, practicing is like a whole other yeah. <laughs> other area of being a student, you know, to be able to have that luxury to just like practice two or three hours a day is incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and not have to think about, I better take it easy in my background today because I have to teach later or I have all these meetings. Like for me now, I'm thinking I have all these meetings I need to go to. I have this, I've got to take care of. I've got these three meetings and then maybe I have to do a film, you know, film a teaching mm. video. So then, you know, it's a little, it's just really, really intense. So maybe would you, what I would be really interested to hear about is where your teaching has gone and, you know, the, the workshop that's coming up on OMSTARS (laughs) has some really interesting topics. So where did that come from? You know, where did that teaching come from? Yeah. I mean, it came, I guess, from this sort of this, what we were talking about, this, you know, sort of lifelong learning passion and, trying to understand or research and go deeper into the mythology of, you know, Indian philosophy and the names behind the postures and like, where did these postures come from? Why are they named after certain people? Um, But also the philosophy of India and, and using, you know, it's so metaphorical in its language, like the Shiva and the Shakti and the Kundalini and the coiled serpent and like, you know, looking at what, what this language actually means, because nobody actually believes there's like a serpent coiled at the base of your spine. Right. So like, what is this referring to? And even looking at how it relates to not just, you know, this very sort of esoteric tantric, you know, imagery, but, but how it relates to us in our lives. So I, I really got interested in, in studying um, Indian philosophy and the mythological stories and the um, language behind how these, you know, this energy gets described. And, um, you know, even though, of course, my heart is the Ashtanga practice and, and I feel like it goes so deep you know, as life has evolved and, you know, we were just talking about how you kind of have to conserve your energy and life's so busy. And then if you, especially when you throw a a child in there (laughs) and then you're homeschooling, (laughs) you know, it's like your practice keeps like getting condensed, condensed, condensed. It feels like. So I started, you know, exploring ways to tap into that energy and more into that meditative space 
and need a little bit less asana and a little bit maybe more breathing practice, more meditation practice to find that same feeling that we were talking about in that Shavasana, right? Where you can really feel like that sense of peace, that sense of calm, that sense of release. Um, and that can carry you through your day and feed your energy rather than, you know, having to practice two hours of asana and then feeling depleted at the end of the day and having nothing left to give, or not even at the end of the day, at the end of your practice. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I got really interested in this idea of like the goddess energy and the play of the masculine and the feminine and the Shiva and the Shakti and how these two things relate And um, with my sort of history in Buddhism and Eastern philosophy looking and Taoism, looking at the yin and the yang, the hard and the soft, and then the yoga sutras, the effort and the ease. And it seems like these dualities are are everywhere, right? We constantly live in duality as well. So, and yoga is about the union, about bringing these two seemingly opposite things together and, and, living in a, in a balanced state with them, right? Seeing how that, that the one actually helps the other and, and they feed each other and they can live in this beautiful, you know, harmony or this beautiful union. So, um, yeah, so I, I just kind of started developing, you know, ideas and practices and, um, meditations around this idea and even like feeling this, this uh, dichotomy of energy and how it works together in our practice, you know, to go up, you have to push down, um, you know, and, and how the push and the pull can work together to create that place of stillness and um, like kind of perfect balance within ourselves. I would love to kind of find out like what the source of this knowledge is, you know, is this really just like your own personal study or is this really like the inspiration of a teacher or someone that you've studied with that kind of sparked this quest to, (laughs) you know, find out this intersection and relationship between Shiva and Shakti and that intersection with the, the, you know, the more um, Buddhist principles of the yin and the yang. I, you know, a lot of it's just self-directed. So there's like a lot of really good um, mythology books out there that you can read. And also just studying like the Puranas or even if you read the Mahabharata, there's all kinds of legends in there. Um, and there seems to be more and more books always coming out with different sort of uh, asana mythologies. I'm trying to think of some of that, but <laughs> the names are eluding me. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of started seeing these connections in all different kinds of ways. And, and I guess I studied with Sri O.P. Tawari for many years as well and learned a lot of philosophy from him, the yoga sutras and, um, a lot of the tantric philosophy and studied the Upanishads with him. And so, Probably a lot of what he's taught me um, also kind of filtered into this understanding of the metaphorical language and and sort of what this energy is and how it it works in us. Well, that's so beautiful. For those people who don't know who um, Tri Tiwari is, then would you please tell everyone who this wonderful yes. teacher is? Yeah, sure. So he was at the time, he was the head of the Kavalyadam Institute in Lonavala, India. And Lonavala is like a tiny 
um, city in between Mumbai and Pune. And um, now he's retired, so he's kind of hard to find, but sometimes you can find him. He'll teach in Thailand and sometimes he teaches in France. So he goes to some of his old students' places to teach. Um, we hosted him when we had a yoga studio in Victoria. He came to visit us twice, which was really nice. Um, and he has a son that lives in Canada. So that kind of worked out nicely also, <laughs> the Canada connection. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's basically a, a master of yoga. He's been in the field of yoga since he was a young man and now he's in his eighties. Um, so he, his whole life has been studying yoga and practicing yoga and specifically, um, the teachings from the Hatha Pradipika, the Kriyas, the cleansing actions and, uh, pranayama practice as well. Oh, what a blessing to learn from him. How, how, how special. Yeah, it was a nice, um, compliment to Patabi Joyce, who was, really focused on the asana in depth. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I felt like it was a good balance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what do you think about this, like the intersection of different faith traditions, you know, like just in terms of, uh, you know, where yoga is in the world today, there are so many, so many people, myself included, who take inspiration from the Buddhist tradition and perhaps practice a Buddhist meditation and practice yoga, which traces its roots in Hinduism and are maybe raised in a, you know, if you're raised in the United States or Canada, then you're raised in a Christian culture and people may or may not have been, you know, raised affiliated with one church or another. I mean, I personally, I personally wasn't because my my grandfather's Buddhist and, you know, from my Japanese side, my, my parents took the decision not you know, not to raise me with any religion, but nevertheless, you know, the U S is a Christian country and I guess so is Canada on some level. Right. So then it's in there in the culture. So what do you think about these intersections of faith and do you take what background faith wise do you come from and how has that sort of manifested itself in your spiritual quests? Yeah, that's such a good question. Kino. Um, my, my parents, I guess my parents, my mother was raised, uh, sort of agnostic, Her father was a surgeon, a doctor. And so he really believed in kind of nature and like the natural world, but not really God so much. Um, And my father, his parents were Anglican, but I would say that they were Anglican more because of like, they were, it was like buying fire insurance, you know, (laughs) they they didn't want to end up burning in hell for the rest of their lives. So I'm not sure it was like a really like, you know, devotional kind of commitment there. Yeah. And fair Uh, enough. You know, you hear, you know, if you don't believe this, then you're going to hell. And please let me be the first to sign up. I don't want to go to hell. I want to burn in the fires of hell for eternity, please. What do I need to do? Yeah. It's a pretty scary proposition when you really sit around and think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But my, my parents were, were hippies. That's how I ended up with the name Harmony. And, um, and so they converted to Christianity, like on a beach in Hawaii, you know, in the hippie movement, um, they were traveling around the world at the time and they were, they were like kind of hippie Christians. So my mother was still very much into transcendental meditation at the time and, um, not like super Christian, but by the time my younger brother was born, uh, it started to be a little bit more sort of like a born again Christian. His name's Adam. 
My name's okay. Harmony. You can see the, the transition <laughs> of, of thought patterns. Um, so I was raised, I would say, as a Christian in, in our house. We went to many different churches, though. So my mother was kind of on the search for a church that she really connected with. So we would go to like Pentecostal churches. We'd go to like Baptist churches, Anglican churches, even like Catholic churches. (laughs) We went all over (laughs) to many, many different types of Christianity. Um, And I remember being a small, you know, girl and ending up like in all these different Sunday school (laughs) classes. Like, you know, it was, it never really felt super homey in a sense, because it was always a new experience in a new place. We go maybe a couple of times and then we try something else. So maybe I got a taste for like experimenting with religion from my mother. I don't know. (laughs) But we eventually kind of started going to the Anglican church that my grandparents were going to at the time. And then shortly after that, we went to a evangelical missionary church for several years. Um, So both again are quite different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And And around that time, I started feeling like there was a lot of, I don't know, it just didn't fit for me exactly. I was questioning a lot. And especially when I started studying religious studies, I started looking at the historical context of Christianity and the formation of the Bible and the formation of the church and the reformation of the church and all the canons and creeds and different things that went into creating Christianity as a, as a formal religion. And that put a lot of, um, skepticism in my mind about, um, I guess the validity of a lot of what I had been taught growing up. And so I think at that time I started, um, going more in the Buddhist direction and looking into Buddhism because also it was something that was a little bit fresh (laughs) and it wasn't really taught as a religion. Like you have to believe these things. It was taught Mm -hmm. more as like a lifestyle um, discipline. And like, these are our practices you can do and they're going to help you because you're going to live a life that's more aligned with with the way of, of Dharma or with sort of cosmic law. And that's going to, you know, elevate your consciousness or help you integrate more with, with the world around you. So I started, I guess I felt more attracted to that rather than like a belief system based on a story, Mm -hmm. I guess. So that was sort of my journey (laughs) of where I came from with religion. And, and then with the Indian um, religion is sort of interesting because I was never super attracted to it as like a belief system. Mm-hmm. I liked the yoga because again, it was the lifestyle disciplines. Um, but when it came down to like, you know, the validity of the Brahmanical sort of hierarchy, I wasn't, I wasn't into it. <laughs> I mm-hmm. did. It was just something I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, buy full, full heartedly. And then, and then do you still feel you sit at the intersection of these three faiths? Um, I guess a little bit. I mean, I feel, I feel like that 
I guess my own personal, <laughs> my own personal religious uh, sort of feelings or bent or that is that, you know, I feel like all humans that we're, we have a similar calling and we have a shared heart and a shared experience um, that leads us to, to seek out something higher than us and leads us to try to also become better than what we are. And that can show up in many different ways. You know, I mean, like it can show up in a materialistic way, you know, where we're trying to like get more money to become elevated or better than where we started, but it can show up in a spiritual way too, or, um, you know, in, in every way we're kind of trying to grow and become, become our best selves or our highest selves in some way. Um, and I feel like depending on your cultural context, where you're born, your family, your roots, that's going to have a lot of impact on, on how this desire is expressed. Um, but that it's the same desire that's moving humans, mm -hmm. all of us collectively towards something greater than ourselves. And, you know, whatever name you want to call that or whatever, you know, box you want to try and put it in, <laughs> it's, it doesn't really matter because it, it can't be boxed in and it doesn't really have a name, you know, and I feel like these distinctions between names and forms are are very limiting. And, and then it puts you in certain camps, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we don't, I, for me, I don't feel we need these camps. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> But if you want to be in a camp, it's cool. <laughs> you can be, I don't mind at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You know, that reminds me of in, you know, in the Vipassana tradition, you know, the Goenka, the, 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 mm -hmm. the teacher is saying, you know, how can you say, what is a Buddhist breath or a Muslim breath or a <clears throat> Christian breath that the teachings of that are, that are true are universal and apply yeah. to every, every human being. And that's kind of, you know, kind of one of the, one of the key tests to say, hold up against any spiritual lineage. Is this, is this a universal teaching or is this a teaching that's very specific and exclusionary? Mm -hmm. So to, to, mm -hmm. to think about that, it's very, very poignant, very interesting. Yeah. And I love that idea about, you know, the breath and it's, I think the Latin word is like inspiro or something, something mm -hmm. to that effect, which it means like the spirit or in the spirit and, and we're all sort of breathing and it's very much connected to this higher spirit, you know, this, this inspiration, this, this thing that's that's pulling us towards it or keeping us going or giving us energy and mm -hmm. um and and it's shared by all of us and it can't be like you said put into one you know one religion or another religion it's just universal and i think the most important things about human beings are those universal things that are shared mm -hmm. So during the practice, the mm -hmm. actual experience of, say, some of these more um, esoteric principles like the, you know, union of Shiva and Shakti, how is that, has that been an, a, like a lived experience in terms of uh, like a subtle flow of energy? Has there been like some shift or kind of like almost awakening experience around some of these principles? 
or, or how does that actually, you know, lived and showed up in, in your actual practice? I think like for me, you know, when I was first, uh, practicing, it was, had a lot of, uh, like masculine energy, a lot of sort of like forceful, um, very active, very dominant kind of like, I'm going to get it done and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be just like all the boys, you know, <laughs> um, really like pushing into the practice and pushing myself in the practice. And it was interesting. Um, I went through all of primary series, all of intermediate series like that. And then, and then I was kind of planning on going through advanced series like that also, but on that trip, I, I didn't get any postures and I was like, I wonder what's going on. Why, why am I not getting moved on? I'm doing everything like perfectly. I'm even lifting up from Krandavasana, like, come on, why am I not in in advanced series? (laughs) And, um, it was actually Maya Hess, a friend of mutual friend of ours, you know, and she, she sort of said to me, maybe you should like, like, look at the energy of the practice and look at the energy of the series. And so that kind of like sparked a little, a little flame in me of like, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe I'm not connecting to something. Maybe I'm missing something in the practice. And so I really started to look at the way I was practicing and then realize like there needs to also be this softness. There needs to be this quality, not just of like fire, but of water. And so I would try to practice, especially with the intermediate series, it's quite feminine um, in its essence. Whereas primary series is quite masculine. You know, it's like a drill sergeant there, like telling you, you know, forward and back and forward and back. And you're like doing all these vinyasas. But the intermediate series is quite creative and it's quite soft in some ways and very subtle. Um, The movements aren't super linear. And so I started to try to like embody water and embody a quality of softness in my practice. And, And I felt like that really changed the practice for me. It changed even my approach to the practice where instead of like trying to force everything, I became much more receptive to the posture and receptive to the practice and, and more allowing, trying to let things like allowing things to take shape and allowing the practice to happen rather than like making it happen. And so I guess like speaking for the practice, that would be the, the way that this, this concept has shown up for me, trying to balance that masculine and feminine energy a bit more, um, in my own personal approach. Hmm. I love that, that, that such a unique balance that I think each of us can find between whether we call it masculine and feminine or activation and release or yin and yang, you know, it's that, is that balance even Patanjali talks about, right? So, you know, yeah. the Avyasa, Vairagya, Vantani, Rodhan, Ninashtaram, Sukhamasanam and all that, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting how we somehow, you know, the, the hard edges in our, in our bodies and minds get softened and mm-hmm. the places that are too soft have to kind of toughen up and harden up, you know? Yeah. And I was just talking with, um, with a student today in class about uh, what happens when you don't get a posture, 
you know, mm. and what the mind does in that moment and how easy the grasping mind comes in. And it can be anything from, well, I want it. I deserve it to I'm bored with what I have. I've been doing the same series for all these years and I just want the next one. Why can't I have the next one? I just want the next one. Exactly. And that whole <laughs> grasping state of mind. And, you know, she was saying, well, if I'm bored, doesn't that indicate that I need the next posture to be stimulated? And I just said, you know, no, <laughs> like not exactly. You know, there's a lesson in boredom as well. Like we're working with this grasping quality of the mind and, you know, whether we call it activation release one or the other, it's just, it's a very, uh, you know, interesting thing uh, to think of polarities, you know, yes. and at the same time to not negate the importance of the polarities, right? Mm -hmm. So some people would be like, oh, masculine. Oh, that's so masculine. Like, I don't like, <laughs> like no, none of that. That's so yank. It's so hard. And then suddenly that gets labeled as bad or the yeah. feminine gets elevated as good. And instead of, instead of that, I mean, something that I, that I sit with, with in regards to polarities is, is really to recognize the necessity of both mm -hmm. and, and making sure not to, you know, um, prioritize or, or, or prioritize one or the other, or place them in a hierarchy of, yeah. of dichotomous thinking that immediately starts to relegate one to good or bad, because that's, that's historically in the Western world anyway, that, that, that's something that's definitely been done with masculine and feminine. Mm -hmm. Right. So if we look at, you know, the history of the, you know, Western like literature and, <laughs> yeah. you know, iconography, the feminine, the dark, the mysterious yeah. relegated to the home, you know, and then yeah, the yeah. masculine, the, the, you know, the sun and the forceful and the, you know, all the good qualities. And it's like, well, wait, the polarities are there, but they're within all of us and within the practice. So, yeah, that's so such an important, important point that it's not, I mean, when using the terms masculine and feminine, you know, they're, they're easy for us to understand in a way because of this historical dichotomy, but that like within each of us, we have these qualities and even within like the feminine, you know, that's why I kind of love the Indian goddesses because they're so complex. You know, you have like Parvati, who's sort of the, the mother and like, you know, the goddess of sacred marriage. And, and then you have Kali, who's like this fierce, like warrior biting off people's heads and like, she's pretty yang, right? She's not like soft and receptive. She's super active and like fearsome and terrifying actually. <laughs> and then you have, you know, like some, some goddess that's a little bit more playful, like maybe Lakshmi, you know, who's like about abundance and beauty and, you know, wealth and good fortune. And then Saraswati, that's more like about studying literature and the arts and music. And, and so like, even within the feminine, there's, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different energies, um, to draw upon. So it's not just always like these two things, but within, within the feminine, there's also a fierce mm -hmm. energy or a warrior energy. And also within the masculine, you know, you have, some masculine deities that are a bit more like, you know, the preserving one like Vishnu, who's like a little softer and a little bit more compassionate. And then you have Shiva and different varieties of Shiva also that come, you know, maybe an ascetic or maybe like a fearsome warrior. And so I think there's, there's definitely um, more going on than just the, the polarities. There's polarities within the polarities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's so important for, you know, people just as individuals to, 
like embrace that full spectrum, you know, because as, as you come onto our contemporary culture where the, 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 you know, the gender polarities are, are questioned, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the, this, this, what I guess what's referred to as gender essentialism is being brought to the table. It's, it's really useful to see within the context of spiritual studies that there, you know, there's more to gender than just masculine and feminine, that there is this, this, you know, sliding scale and, and we could even almost really start to see the, you know, the, the intelligence of the notion of non-binaryism, you know, and yeah. the, the, the notion of, of, of just, just refraining from putting gender in boxes, even just from a spiritual tradition. Right. So I, I, I love that. And I feel like, you know, this is quite a, a pioneering space to be in when we think about, you know, the acceptance of many different genders when in our contemporary culture, but, but maybe it traces its roots all the way back to that, that, you know, <laughs> that Hindu pantheon of these uh, different uh, deities that embody all these different aspects that we can find within ourselves. I'd love that. So I want to ask you one more, one more question, which is what can people expect when they come to class, you know, are they going to get immersed in the deities? <laughs> are they going to get to do some asana? Like, what's this? What's a class with you like? <laughs> well, it depends. I have I have a wide variety of different <laughs> classes, but um, in this one, uh, there will be a little bit of meditation. I'm going to do a meditation. We're going to do some breathing, some pranayama, and also. A little bit of asana, but it's not going to be like a traditional Ashtanga class. It'll be a bit more creative, and we're, I'm thinking that we'll focus a bit more on like like power powerful poses or poses that are evoking or wake, awakening, you know, different energy centers in the body. Um, and of course, there'll probably be a little philosophy too, because I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think that sounds awesome. So I think it's really something to look forward to. Well, yeah, uh, it's like creative and playful and fun, but also hopefully like a deep experience for people. Hopefully mm. they feel like they're going to connect with something deeper inside themselves. Nice. I love that. So <laughs> wonderful. Well, Harmony, thanks so much for sharing your, your story, your teaching, your methodology with me and with everyone who's listening today. So again, thank you so much. And I uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you, Kino. It was such a pleasure. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.